Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Outer New Trade Rumors podcast. On tonight's episode, Trey and I discuss the 5 MILB draft that recently took place in the Outer New Champions League. This is the minor league draft that's an off-roster portion and added to the current Outer New system. We discuss some of our general strategies for the draft as well as players we targeted and general strategies that we saw other teams take. Enjoy the show! So, what, what did you think about the 5 MILB draft as far as like what it added to the league. Did you have did you have any general feelings as it was happening or um, Well, there was some discussion about it today on Slack in the uh, Auto New community, but I did think it was a ton of fun. I, I, I mean, I like prospects. I like digging deep. I've spent a year in the past rebuilding my team and I got real familiar watching videos, scouting reports, that sort of thing. So I enjoyed it. I like taking the league as deep as possible and making Auto New as as dynasty like as possible. So I felt like this was a step in that direction without overdoing it. Yeah, that I, I feel like and this certainly wasn't intentional, but as I look back at some of the names who were picked, I, I think that five was probably about the perfect amount. Um, we could have maybe gone a little bit less or a little bit more, but I feel like we really encapsulated a larger player pool um, than we otherwise would have as far as prospects who are owned in the league. Um, yeah, we. I mean, just to recap sort of what we did for those that aren't familiar, but this year in the Champions League, we added a, a minor league system that we're considering non-rostered. So... We essentially took 12 teams, and each team got to draft five minor league prospects that they get to keep indefinitely for $0. So those five guys do not count against their 40-man roster or their $400 salary cap. And they can keep those guys non-rostered in a separate spreadsheet that we maintain. And they can keep those guys for as long as they want until that player gets one AB or one innings pitched in the major leagues, at which point they've got 48 hours to make a decision. They can either call the player up uh, to their 40-man roster at at a cost of $1. They can trade the player to somebody else who would also go on a 40-man roster, or they can cut the player. Um, So it, uh, it sort of takes some of the risk out of keeping prospects long-term. So, perfect example... Well, I don't know. What do you think, Is there an example of a player that you saw drafted that probably really has no business being drafted in a competitive auto new league on you know, 40-man rosters that would be a perfect fit for for this type of situation? Yeah, I think, I think there are a couple names that we've discussed, um, one of whom is already owned on a 40-man, but I, one of the examples that I saw... Uh, right off the bat in the second round was Justin's pick of Manny Margot. Uh, in the second round, I think it was the fourth pick of the second round, he drafted Margot. And I like Margot a lot. I actually own him in one of my leagues, um, but I only own one prospect, and that's him. And I, I just thought that, or I think that Margot is a perfect example of someone who's in low A, high A ball who could really have an impact in future years, but really isn't owned in any leagues. Um, was there any specific examples that you saw I know later in the draft there were a lot more, but that was one of the first names that I saw that kind of stuck out. 
You still there, Trey? Hey, Trey. Yeah. Sorry, I lost you there. Um, did you hear what I said about picking Margot as one of the names that stuck out to me? Yeah, I lost you too for a second, so I, I, I only heard you say Margot. But okay. I think he's a good example. Well, I mean, the guy, the one guy before we drafted, the one guy I assumed would be the number one pick in this type of um, – minor league draft so basically we're adding 60 players to the to the to the system of our league the number one guy i thought would be the the top pick was Raphael devers hey i actually and, thought he would be the one number one pick too i wanted him yeah, bad I mean, he, he's he's a, he's well known for being uh, a long eta from mlb but one of the few that is popping up on top 100 lists and so yeah, he doesn't fit that. He's probably not even going to be called up in the next three years, maybe at the tail end of that. But, you know, is it worth holding him even for a dollar in a 40-man or in a 40-man team if you're trying to be competitive? I don't know. I mean, roster spots are pretty valuable. And so even if he comes up at 4 or $5, was it worth locking down your roster for the last four years to do that? So he would be a perfect player, I think, for this type of scenario, but ironically, he was chosen late in our in our auction draft, so he didn't make it to this draft. Yeah, he was the guy I would have picked one one if I had the choice, and he was available. Um, but he, guys like Devers, I think, are perfect examples for this draft. I know Ahmed Rosario went early in this draft. Um, he's another example, a guy who's a couple of years away. But you can you can take a chance on that guy when you wouldn't have been able to in a standard odd or new league or I can't say you wouldn't have been able to but I don't feel like you wisely could take a chance on that guy um, and lock down the roster spot I feel like right. you'd really be wasting a spot if you were to do that right so what was your what was your strategy going into the draft I mean other than picking the best player I mean so, I saw some comments as we were drafting from the league that some owners I got the impression that they wanted to pick players that were further than a year away because they wanted to compete this year and they didn't want to be forced to make a decision probably as early as 2015 to call up a guy whether or not knowing that he'll actually be you know productive for their team this year what what was your strategy so my strategy was kind of twofold I I definitely considered the possibility of having someone come up right away either potentially help my team or cause a problem because I would have to either force a cut or something like that. Um, that was de definitely something I considered, but at least initially my plan was to just go with the best available player I, who I thought was was on the board. At least with my first round pick, that's what I wanted to do. And for anyone listening, I took Austin Meadows uh, with the fifth pick, I believe. Um, and he was the top player on my board at that time. So that, that was my strategy, at least initially. Once it got back to the second round, um, I was trying to gauge whether I wanted to go with pitching or hitting. And ironically, I didn't end up taking any pitchers. Um, but the reason for that was because there were a couple guys I liked who went ahead of me in this, between my pick in the first and then in the second. 
Um, the one I was actually looking at was Sean Manaya, but it was just because of Park. My thought process was that when a hitter comes up, I think that at least initially it's harder to be above replacement level um, than it is for a pitcher if the pitcher has a good park behind him. So if you, if you had Manaya come up, for example, he's already in Kansas City, you have a great situation, but even if he ends up not doing well, at least you can spot start him in, that, in those games at Kansas City. Okay, it, You can't do the same thing with John Gray. D- does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, so that was my thought process with pitching, which I think is the main reason I didn't end up picking any pitchers, because by the time it got to me in the second and the third, there were pitchers available in the top 100 like Brady and Shipley, but they're in a horrible home park, and I didn't want to risk having to bring a guy up who would already, if I was going to bring a guy up who was already going to be below replacement level, I would rather tie that to a hitter that I liked more. Was my was what I ended up doing. Um, what about you? Um, somewhat similar. I pretty much made the decision that I probably would not take any pitcher um, at all. Although, I mean, I kept an eye on them just in case there was value there. But um, I think there were three pitchers taken in the first round. The first was um, Jeff Hoffman, it, maybe? Yeah, it was Jeff Hoffman. And the second was um, Hunter Harvey, who's on the Orioles, and then Manaya. So three pitchers, first round. Um, yeah, I, my goal was not to take a pitcher, number one, um, after watching ligaments snap all spring training. So that was one, one goal. Um, second goal was I was not afraid to take guys that had a closer ETA, even if they had a lower uh, upside. So I felt like I wanted to take a couple of chances, probably late, because I figured the the quality of the players would be a little thinner. But I'm okay. I was okay with a high floor. So I chose Hunter Renfro first. I had the second pick. He went right after uh, Ryan McMahon, uh, who uh, Dave Cameron picked, which I thought was a good pick. But I thought Hunter Renfro offered uh, the high a little bit different than what I just said, actually. I thought he offered pretty good upside, and I think his floor is probably lower than some, but I think his floor is still I think it's offset. I think it's offset by the fact that he's closer than a guy like Meadows, for example. Right, right. So, just on that note, can you just tell everyone who your first three picks were? Because um, you kind of, I think you did that with your first three picks, if I remember correctly. I did, yeah. I took... So I had the second pick, it's a snake draft, so I took Hunter Renfro, and you took Austin Meadows, Yes. And which I thought was a good pick, he was high on my board, and then I drafted, uh, you know, I was uh, you know, almost 20 picks later, and I took uh, Steven Piscotti, okay. and I took Piscotti because, for a couple reasons, uh, one, I'm a Cardinals fan, I like Piscotti. Number two, uh, I own him on another team. Number three, I, I think he's got a high floor. I don't think he's probably going to be more than a fifth outfielder. But looking around the league in a competitive league like ours, I mean, there's teams that are starting uh, Drew Stubbs as their fifth outfielder. And so I'm, I was just thinking, you know, if the guy can hit 10 or 12 home runs and have a 340 on base percentage, he probably is worth a fifth outfielder or a spot 
starter or six, you know, a guy to come off the bench, that's probably enough to keep him around mm-hmm. for one dollar. Yeah, worst um, case scenario, you own him for a dollar or two, and he's your sixth or seventh outfielder, and he's just filling games when the other guys aren't in. Yeah, and and that was one of the questions I posed as we were drafting: is you know, what do you consider success? So I think it really depends. For Piscotti, I think I'd be pretty happy if he ends up a fifth outfielder. Um, the, the next guy I took was Josh Bell, who um, is probably going to end up at first base. Maybe he'll retain outfield eligibility for 2016. He's probably not coming up this year. Um, but I think he was the highest guy. He had the highest scouting grades on my board at the time. I think he's probably a high OBP guy, which plays pretty well in auto new and he's pretty close so he's kind of in that same range as Renfro, Piscotti and Bell that all three of those guys should without you know unless there's something strange that happens that all three of those guys should probably debut in 2016 maybe Piscotti a little earlier yeah I I completely agree I was actually so I guess I should just say what my first three picks were because after the first three rounds I felt like it was where you kind of saw a divide as far as talent level and people going off lists. Um, My my first three picks were Austin Meadows, Bradley Zimmer, and then Forrest Wall in Colorado. And Zimmer's in Cleveland. I didn't mention that. Um, And I had a similar strategy to what you're saying. I I feel like at the beginning, I would have, I had Meadows ahead of Renfro, but it was close. I mean, I would have been happy with either. There were a couple guys I was hoping like, I had a list of a couple guys, and I was just hoping one of them fell to me. Um, and then I had Zimmer right ahead of Bell, uh, and I had Piscotti a little bit lower. So it, it, it was just one of those things where I felt like I took the best player. Um, they're a little bit farther away, but I didn't feel like I was making... I didn't feel like at that point I was just picking upside and not picking guys who were... I didn't feel like I was picking guys I'd have to wait two or three or four years on. Um for example. Right. So, and, and it was obvious that other teams had different strategies. I mean, maybe they took the highest-ranked player, but for instance, um, Tyler Kolek was selected the first pick in the second round, which I thought, you know, he's a long way away. Most likely he's got a lot of upside, potentially, but, you know, he's a big arm. Um, we've seen those guys flame out. So, you know, he could be the next Archie Bradley, or he could be much better than that, but that felt a little early. Michael Conforto went right after him, which I thought was a good pick. Um, yeah, I liked Conforto as well. I had him right in that group with Bell and uh, and Zimmer and a couple of those other outfielders. Um, that was one of the other things that I did. I didn't know if you specifically did the same thing. You went three outfielders right off the bat. Did position at all play a factor in your picks? Or were you um, just trying to did. pick the best bat? No, it did. Um, I had planned to take a bunch of shortstops. Okay. When, when the draft started, I thought, I'll just take, I figured it, you know, you can't go wrong if a guy develops into the next, even if he develops into the next Eric Ibar, it's worth it for a buck. Um, and it just didn't fall. I, I think if I had a later pick, I would have picked, um, some some shortstops, but just every time it came to me, I did not see it. I really, really wanted Daniel Robertson. I thought that was one of my favorite picks. He was the 12th pick of the first round. Yeah, I would have picked him if he fell to me, too. Yeah, I, I thought he might come back to me. I, I liked Renfro better. 
and mm-hmm. I, I lucked out in getting the second pick. But I really like the Daniel Robertson pick because I feel like, you know, he'll, he'll be worth a buck at shortstop. He's probably going to be a replacement-level guy pretty quickly, and, um, you know, he's worth worth the chance. But I, I like the mud. Ahmed Rosario, he would I would have picked him later if I had gotten a chance. The guy I really almost picked near the end of the draft that I may regret one day not picking him is Orlando Arcia. Um, he it was between him and uh, Michael Chavis, who I uh, or actually between him and uh, Monty Harrison. I, I chose the, the straight up lottery ticket at the end. Um, I really wanted a shortstop, and I wanted to fill my pipeline with shortstops. It just it didn't work out that way. Yeah, I think I had a similar thought process. I didn't really target shortstops or outfield um, or a position specifically, but what I tried to do was look at positions that I typically carry a decent amount of depth at. So, for example, you're going to carry six outfielders. So I wanted a guy that, like, if I was bringing someone up um, – I could easily slot him in and use the depth at that position. Whereas if right. I would have brought up a first baseman, typically I'm strong at first base. It's going to be a lot harder to just bring someone up. Um, right. was my thought process. So I tried to pick guys middle infield, outfield. I, that ended up being all my picks. But those were the areas that I was specifically looking just because I knew you could always use depth at those positions. And having a replacement level guy there... I felt more okay with than I would have otherwise, only because filling games, I think, is so much more essential. No, I agree with you. I mean, that's why you picked Forrest Wall. I mean, I thought that was a good pick. Yeah, Um, because he's in Colorado, was the other. Yeah, anybody in Colorado, I think you... you That was the main reason I picked him. Right. So. um, The last round was was pretty interesting. Um, I think there was a specific point where it got interesting, if you don't mind me saying, there was one pick where I felt like everything kind of turned. Um, and that was when um, when Michael Geddes was selected from San Diego. Yeah. That I felt like one, when that happened... He was, he was the middle of the fourth round. Yeah, he was, he was middle of the fourth, and as soon as that pick happened, everyone started going deep. Or off... I felt like off lists, you know what I mean? Um where it wasn't just, like, best player available anymore. That's where I felt like everything kind of turned, and that led to me picking Alex Verdugo and then um, Brett Phillips from Houston. I think you said you picked Michael Chavis and Monte Harrison, correct? Yeah, I w- I'm pretty excited about my Michael Chavis pick. I mean, I was debating between him and Verdugo two picks before, and I just went really? with Verdugo instead, yeah. Well, I'm excited because I, you know, I'm here in Greenville, so I should get to see him play. But if he if he sticks at second base, which he may not, he may be a third baseman. But um, I had him pretty high on my board, and then I had a bunch of guys for my last pick, and I I chose the lottery ticket, Monte Harrison. I mean, the guy could be he could be a 2020 outfielder. He could he could flame out completely. So he's he's in low A. He who knows what he'll do this year, but He's he's got some skills, but there were a lot of there were a lot of lottery tickets in that last round. Mm-hmm. Um, Magnura Sierra on St. Louis was a, was an interesting pick that I was a little bit surprised to see him selected, but uh, that was pretty interesting. What what about what about you? I, really, I like that whole, and we talked about this earlier today. 
Um, Dave Cameron mentioned something like this, where I, I just felt like after Geddes was where people really started flipping coins. Um, and, and I don't personally have a problem with that at all. Um, I just felt like the, the general tone of the draft really changed after, after that pick. Um, and I don't say that to say that any of us do or don't know anything more than anyone else. Um, I, I just think that at that point was when people really started to take chances beyond what they otherwise would have. I think up until that point, I basically could rationalize every pick. Not that I couldn't rationalize that one. I just felt like that's where it kind of got pretty risky. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the good news is, I think... But it was fun, too. I I don't mean that negatively at all. No, yeah. I mean, I I think it proved what we expected, that you might as well take some risks. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's really no cost, and you would never draft Michael Geddes in Autonew. I mean, you shouldn't. Yeah. So... um, you know, I, I thought I thought it was fun. I mean, that's what makes it fun. It's you get you get pretty deep. You get deeper than you would normally. It still allows you to maintain a very competitive forty-man roster, which was very important for us in, in this league. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you get lucky, it could pay off pretty big. I, I agree. I one of the things that I thought might have been a motivation for some of those picks, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Uh, the picks toward the end of the fourth and fifth round was that at least for me, I didn't pick anyone specifically hoping my motivation was never this guy's going to graduate so I can clear a roster spot for next year and the reason that I bring that up for anyone listening is because the way that this works is that there's only 60 players in the 5 MILB system so next year for example if none of your guys graduate you have to make the choice between cutting one of them promoting one of them or not having a pick okay because you can only pick up to 60 players total in the league so if you have four if you decide to keep four guys you only get one pick next year um, my thought process was that if you take a guy, like I took Verdugo, for example, if he doesn't do anything and he absolutely busts, well, it's easy to cut him next year, you, you know what I mean, and get an extra pick, okay? I feel pretty confident that my first three picks in Meadows, Zimmer, and Wall aren't going to be cut, okay? My last two picks in Verdugo and Phillips, I could easily cut next year, Um but they could also become top 100 prospects, in which case I'll either decide to promote someone or I won't make a pick next year. Um, but I wanted to pick a guy towards the end that I thought could at least give me the ability. Um, I didn't want to. I didn't want to be super safe. Like I didn't want to pick a Braden Shipley, end up having to promote him, or if he was stuck in the minors, feel like I had to keep him. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I I sort of looked at it just a little differently. I mean, I I wanted some guys to graduate, to force my hand in case they um, in, play, in case they played well, but also to free up another draft pick. So Piscotti fit that role for me perfectly. I mean, he, he might be up this year. In fact, he probably will be eventually. And I'll have to make that judgment call. He may or may not be worth keeping, but uh, hopefully he will be. But either way, I'll have that, that slot open so I can draft again in November. All right. So, was there anything else you wanted to cover with the five MILB draft, or any other points you um, wanted to make, or do you want to get on to some bold predictions? No, let's move on. We're going to talk about uh, some bold predictions for Auto New 2015. 